Welcome to the Lead with Levity podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Walker, and I just want to say that I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. Thank you for tuning in week after week. For those subscribers that we have globally at this point, I really do appreciate you. We've got subscribers in the US, Europe, India, Australia, Canada. And I also want to give a big shout out to some of our listeners who are in Hong Kong, Nigeria, South Africa, China, and the Netherlands. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if this is your first time checking out the Lead with Levity podcast, I don't know how you found me, but I'm so glad that you did today. Please subscribe so that you can get updates going forward. Uh, Some of our top episodes so far have been lessons from the World Cup champions, how to build rapport with anyone, and how to be a bad boop without burning out. (laughs) How to be a badass without burning out. So thank you. I started this back in September, and so far I've received so much love. It's been a great opportunity, a great way to connect with other professionals in the field, get their perspectives on the work world and what we can do to make things better. And I'm happy to share those perspectives with you. And you can decide what you want to keep, what you want to incorporate into your practice and bring back to your workplace. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and get started with today's episode. Our guest today is Rob Moore. Rob hails from the UK and he is a real estate mogul. He's a millionaire or a multimillionaire with over 750 properties. And I'm excited and happy to share some of his perspectives on leadership, on how to build a community that lasts, whether you are a new solopreneur or you're starting to build your team or you've gotten to the point where now you've got to add in some layers. How do you continue to have a strong community as you scale your business? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Stick around. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Heather Walker, and this is Lead with Levity. I help leaders create awesome work environments where communication is light, enjoyable, and uplifting. I shed light on the power of levity at work. Imagine just how much you can get done in that kind of environment. Come explore with me. It's time for a sneak peek. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and this is possibly my fifth podcast in two days. Uh, and I am very privileged to be having um, Heather Walker interview me from the Lead with Levity podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, disrupting workplace culture, which I think in many places probably does need disrupting. And in the UK right now, we've had a big thing where Thomas Cook have just gone bust and there's been many staff um, that uh, have no job. Uh, In fact, I put a post on my profile. uh, I just said, look, if anyone in Peterborough, Thomas Cook is struggling for employment. I'm hiring. Um, 133 people shared that. I feel sorry for my head of HR, who's probably had um, maybe even hundreds of CVs sent in. Um, but, you know, maybe some companies can step up their game when it comes to workplace culture, whether you're an entrepreneur, 
building a culture and hiring or whether you are in the workplace because you're an employee. Um, I think that um, it's a great subject. Um, Heather, I'm gonna hand over to you now. This is your show. I'm your humble servant. Um, Take it away and thank you. And now on with the show. Thank you, Rob. I really do appreciate that. And those of you who are listening to my podcast, this is Dr. Heather Walker uh, with the Lead with Levity podcast. And today we have Rob Moore. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for collaborating with me. And those of you who are not familiar with Rob, he is known for being disruptive. He's held three world records for public speaking. He's authored nine books, including a global bestseller, Life Leverage. And Rob even founded and co-owns the UK's largest and most disruptive property education business. And he manages over 750 properties with his partner. I can only imagine. Rob, you know, I have a question for you. I have rental properties myself. There's a lot of property education out there. What is it about yours that makes it disruptive? Mark and I have bought hundreds of single lets. We've bought many multi-lets, big commercial conversion projects. We're developing a, uh, an 85,000 square foot, 100 unit conversion at the moment, as well as one on the other side of the road that's maybe 35,000 square foot. So the first thing is we're, we're kind of doing it at a fairly big level. Um, the second thing is we've built a community so we don't just see property investing as two chaps who know it all, who've made themselves into gurus. Mm. But instead, we've built a community of people who are young and old from all walks of life in many countries around the world. Uh, we give a lot of information for free to get people started. Um, and we use all the media channels, podcasts, YouTube. We have big Facebook group in the UK. Of course, um, email database. Um, and so I think community, I think the fact that we, we did it from a young age, I think um, I didn't have any of my own money. So I did joint ventures and raised finance in a, a very creative way, doing um, partnerships with my business partner, um, loans secured on properties that we paid back um, that went up in value. So we were able to recycle cash that wasn't ours. So I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of, I, I know people probably perceive it's quite easy for me to blow my own trumpet, but I find that quite hard. Mm. I mean, I was an artist and I like being creative and I like um, getting in the face of the conventional and I like shaking up the boring and the normal. And I suppose 10, 12 years ago, everyone in England was doing single lets and we, we didn't design, but we disrupted with things like um, packaging and selling deals and doing what's called rent to rent in the UK. So we've been very forthright and forward and often first in the more innovative option, instalment, rent to rent type investing strategies where you don't necessarily need deposits or have to buy property. I see. I see. It, it sounds very similar to some strategies that we use here in the US. And uh, what you've been doing in terms of being disruptive is is that community building, making sure that you're not going it alone. Yes, you've got a podcast. Yes, you're doing education, but you've developed a group of people around you to help you and, and you're helping them as well to be successful. Yeah, for me, the great thing about community is I like people. So that's a tick for me. 
I think that the power in the many is way greater than the power of the one. Uh, I'm a big believer that there are people out there smarter than you and different than you who can you can have in your team that you can leverage and they can leverage you. I think success is always sweeter shared with someone else. And I think when you're lonely and struggling, it's always easier when there's people around you. So some people don't really like building communities. Maybe they're introverts, they're loners, or they're they're just a bit sort of self-focused. For me, I think most of the success in my business has been because of collaborations and partnerships. This podcast is a collaboration between ourselves. Right. And I really believe in in growth through communities and collaborations. So I think that plays in very nicely into our topic today about company culture. What do you feel are some of the top challenges that the entrepreneurs that you've been working with have in creating a solid culture as they scale their businesses? So going from, yes, I'm not... I'm not poor anymore. I'm actually, I have rental property. I have investments. I'm actually building a team. Now my team is scaling, but I have all of these people and it's more than just me and my crew. I I have, I have levels. So what do you feel are the top challenges for those individuals? Right. So there's quite a few here, Heather. Um, So I I hope people are going to take notes on this. I think the first thing we found that the difference between a manager and a leader is huge. So when you're an entrepreneur, you are a leader, a visionary. uh, And the vision is just selfish when you start because there's just you. Right. And then when you have when you have staff, your vision now has to be not selfish anymore. Um, So you can't be saying I, me, my all the time. I want to do this, my company. It has to be more inclusive. So it has to be we. And if you get people involved in your vision, and it's not just about you, it's about the whole entity, um, this whole new body, then you're going to get more motivated staff. I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is leadership is, is, is kind of like, um, this is the direction we're going. Everyone come with me and inspiring people to come with you. But management is here's where the um, staff handbook is. Here's our you know policy. Here, here are our... Um, benefits packages. Here's our pension, um, you, you know, process. Here's a grievance process, etc. And when you're an entrepreneur, you don't want to deal with all of that, and it's not your strength, and you don't really even know about it. But you've got to do it. So that's the second thing: is the difference between leadership and management. And Mark and I, my business partner, we're honest enough to say we're terrible managers. Um, you, you know, we're both in our own ways not bad leaders. But we're terrible managers because it takes a lot of consistency. Managers have to do the same thing over and over and over and over. They have to have the monthly reviews with, you know, with their staff. They have to do the same thing month in, month out, month in, month out. Whereas entrepreneurs often like the variety and they want to do something different month to month. So that was definitely a big thing. Then as you get even bigger, um, you know, I never really wanted to be corporate. And to me corporate is a dirty word and and it's kind of not really fair because I've never worked in a corporate so my perception of corporates is only it's a a fantasy because I've never worked in a corporate Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of corporate companies are entrepreneurial now and the word corporate has changed in its meaning but what we never wanted to be was a big lazy soulless machine um, you know where you didn't make an impact 
where you weren't treated like someone who was smart, where you didn't have input into the direction of the business, where you were in cubicles, um, etc. And we never wanted that culture. So we wanted to be very flat with our organisational chart, not too many layers of management, you know, almost a beanbag culture where it was relaxed, where everyone kind of hot desked and could have, have a laptop and there was a pool table and it was all funky and cool. How did that work out? (laughs) I know how did that work out I don't even need to answer that um so as you get bigger you do need a corporate structure you do need a hierarchy you do need managers and managers who manage managers that's the reality so the answer to your question specifically Heather depends on size but what we found is once we put one layer of management in that really changed the culture because we probably had seven or eight people playing pool in the pool table, but work, but, you know, in the office, which doubled up as our meeting table, but also worked till nine o'clock at night right. um, and right. came in early. And we had a really great culture when we had about eight people and it was family orientated and it was disruptive and it was um, quite organic, a bit chaotic, if I'm honest, but we loved it. And there was a buzz and a thrive and, the, you know, there was no policy and process and everyone liked that. Um, but then when there gets too many for you to manage, things start to break and then people are like, oh, well, what about a salary review? Oh, we don't do those. And, oh, well, what happens if, I, what, if I'm sick? Do I get sick pay? Oh, well, we don't do that um, because you didn't have any of those processes in place, you know, when you're just a little entrepreneurial venture. So we brought a manager in, someone who was a really high up um, in a corporate company, but we knew we wanted that. Um, and, they, and they came in between us and them. And all of a sudden we had our open door policy became a go to Catherine, the MD, go to <laughs> Catherine, the MD. Don't talk to me. Go to Catherine, the MD. And it was a real change in culture. And people felt they were getting stonewalled and people felt like we were just trying to mo- maneuver towards getting rid of them. And I mean, our MD did a great job. She's still with us to this day. But um, all bar um, maybe one or two of those staff did end up leaving. And so that culture changed from you know, open door policy where we're one of the lads or we're one of the staff. I used to go to the gym with some of them. Mark used to go out in the evenings with some of them. That all had to change and we had to become more official and more processed. And now you have a staff contract and you have a job description and you have a staff handbook and here's the, um, here's the health and safety policy and here's the first aid kit and here are your benefits package. And, you know, when you start, maybe they're not as good as they are when you right. grow. And I personally enjoyed that jump because I felt like we were becoming a real company but a lot of people don't like that because they're entrepreneurs and they don't like what they perceive to be a a more cold feel so yeah there's some things to start us off Heather so it sounds like when you had that magical number of about eight people uh your company had a lot of levity going on there at least from listening to what you're saying and there was a shift that occurred as it got larger. Uh, but, you know, in listening to you, I can't imagine that your current company has any less levity than it did before. And I'm wondering, how did you help it make that shift as you scaled and got a little bit larger? Well, I think the key thing is having a core set of values, company values. And it sounds a bit corporate and cliched, but we do live those and they're progressive, innovative, personal. So you can be a big company and still have a personal value because you can have a flatter organisational chart. You can um, we um, we sing happy birthdays to the staff. We do anniversary presents and gifts. 
Um, we have a lot of uh, meetings and togetherness. We have a social team. Um, we have benefits package where you get to choose. There's about nine benefits and you can choose, say, four or five. You can buy holiday, sell holiday. Um, people can always come to Mark and I, especially me, because that's more my side of the business. At any level, people can challenge me in the office publicly. Someone who's just started can give me an idea or challenge one of my ideas and I'll embrace that. Mm. So you can still be a personal company even when you're big if that's one of your brand values. So, And I got the team involved in this for probably a few months, Heather. We had office meetings every one to two weeks and we discussed, well, what, what words mean something to us? Resourceful, innovative, disruptive, progressive personal, ambitious, loyal. And we chucked all these words out and we kept refining them each week or two and thinning them down and removing duplication until we actually agreed as a team. And of course, I had to lead that. So I had to make some executive decisions, but mostly as the whole staff. And back then, there would have only been 15, 20 of us. We agreed on the progressive, innovative, personal for the core values and then the internal staff values, ambitious, loyal, team, resourceful, etc., and then we try our absolute best to live by those values. Um, and hiring really great people is obviously a, a bit of a cliche. You know, you hire great people. We all know that. Um, but I think we had a policy shift. In the early days, we'd pay minimum that we could because we wanted to be lean and we didn't want big overhead and we were worried about cost. Um, but we don't have that same mentality now and we want great people and we're not London, we're a bit outside. Mm. So finding great people is a little bit harder. Um, but hey, look, um, if we're a great place to work, people will come from London. And, and I think looking after your people, uh, I think that um, like, this could sound a bit like, like lip service, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I really believe it. And then my, my team could tell you if I do live this. But when you're an entrepreneur and you hire people, in your mind, you think that people work for you but no one works for you ever. People work for themselves and you're paying them. So they want their mortgage paid. They wanna go to the gym. They wanna have three or four holidays a year. They wanna spend time with their kids and put them through school and whatever else that they want. So they're working for themselves. You just happen to be paying them. So if any entrepreneur has the delusion that people work for you, then the sooner you get rid of that, the sooner you build a good culture, I believe. And I believe that I work for my stuff. And with Thomas Cook, it's a big company in England. Mm -hmm. They've just gone bust. They, um, I mean, in, the, in Peterborough, I think they um, employ 9,000 people across all their brand, all their um, like offices and shops. One of their offices employs 1,000 people in, in this city. So it's a big employer. Um, and, you know, that shows to me that actually those people are out of work and there's a load of redundancies and a load of lost money. Um, and, and that proves to me, actually, that Thomas Cook was working for those people, not the other way around, because those people are now out of a job. Mm. So when you have the mindset shift that you work for your team rather than they work for you, you don't have ego, you don't have power play, you don't have hierarchy. I mean, there's a natural hierarchy, of course. You have to lead and make hard decisions and you get the final call and you take the responsibility and you take the risk. But I don't, you know, I sit in and around the office. I don't have a, a, an ivory tower or a big glass box. Knocked that down years ago. 
I'd hot desk quite a lot and sit in different places. I'd talk to everyone I can in the office. Maybe not so much the finance team. I need to work on that. <laughs> um, but that's just because it's not air my business, but I should work on that. You know, the management by walking around. I do really believe in listening and talking to your team. All the best, all the best ideas for improvements in my business come from my team. The salespeople are talking to the guys on the phone, so they have the feedback for the customer service. And the marketing team are doing the marketing. I'm not. So... I work for my team. They don't work for me. Uh, and I think that really helps with creating a good culture. Yeah. And connecting with your people, asking questions, finding out what what they're doing even outside of office hours, uh, what they're struggling with at home, what's going on. It's so important. It helps you gather intel about what motivates them, uh, what engages them. And one thing that always strikes me as odd. It's always interesting to me when this happens is when I come across an executive who is afraid to not only get out there and talk to their teams, but also to survey, like not, (laughs) I won't have a conversation. And I, I definitely am afraid to even send out some, you know, survey online that is anonymous because I'm afraid of getting feedback. I know that the feedback's going to be negative and I don't know what I'm going to do with that. So if, if there's negative feedback, I want to know it. Like if you're ill, you, you want to know what the diagnosis is, surely. You don't want to just pretend you're not ill if you know you're ill. And I see that with my team. I'm not delusional enough to, to think we're perfect. We're not perfect. So there's always going to be areas where we as a company and me as an individual are failing. I want to know fast so then I can fix it. So for me, that's vital. We do start, stop, keep surveys once a quarter. I can't remember if it was um, scaling up by Vern Harnish. I borrowed that little survey um, set of three questions from, but it's really good. What should we start, i.e. what are we not doing? What should we keep, i.e. what are we doing well that we should do more of? And um, what should we stop, i.e. what are we doing badly? Right. Um, it's, good. Right. it's a really good little system because it draws out truth. Um, because sometimes some art questions in surveys don't draw out truth. Um, So we do both anonymous and um, open forums for surveys. Um, There's there's a big thing in America that's come over to the UK, which is crowdsourcing. You know, there's crowdsourcing of funds, crowdsourcing of ideas. Now, um, people have this perception of me that know me or follow me that I have a lot of ideas and I'm really good with ideas. It's actually a myth. I don't have that many really unique eureka shower, bath, middle of the night moments where I have these great ideas. What I do is talk to people a lot, listen to people a lot, watch people a lot, hang out in communities a lot. You know, I find out the gossip and not just the gossip gossip, but, you know, the business gossip and find out what's going on with the team and the staff and in their lives and what are the discussions and what are their issues and problems. And all of those formulate an idea in my head via crowdsourcing. Mm. And the great thing about that is they're better ideas, but also there's less pressure on you, the entrepreneur, because sometimes as the founder of the business, I'm like, oh man, everyone's looking at me for the million pound idea or the 10 million pound idea. There's a lot of pressure on me to go and solve all the problems for the business. You know, that's quite a lot of pressure, especially the bigger you get. But actually, all the answers I need are in my team. So all, all you really need is a little bit of humility, get rid of ego, bring all your staff on a level rather than you thinking you're above them, treat them all like you'd want to be treated. And I want my team to come into work and enjoy being there. And I'm a bit soft, so I probably maybe don't keep them hardcore accountable like some people would. Like if people make mistakes, I'm quite forgiving. But I believe if someone comes into the office and they enjoy being there, they're going to be productive. 
I believe if they don't enjoy being there, they're not. And I believe enjoying being in the workplace creates a great culture. Right. So these kind of all come back to each other. Now, one thing you, you said, Heather, which I thought was really insightful, which we need to talk about is you said about, you know, talking to them, getting to know them, maybe finding out a bit about their personal life. Well, of course, there's a line and I don't go to the gym with my staff anymore. Um, but so, so there's a, got to be a professional line. Otherwise, managing them is hard. But I can tell you this, maybe a third to one half of the time, if a staff member is underperforming, sick and absent a lot, um, it's because there's something wrong in their personal life, something going wrong with their, their marriage, maybe, or they've got an issue with one of their kids or um, they've got a big house extension or a problem with their mortgage or, you know, an illness in family. And like, you want to know what's wrong with your staff so you can help them become more productive. And if you assume it's performance when actually it's illness at home or something in their personal life, then in a way they're getting penalised for that and you, you're not understanding why they're not productive. When you care to find out what's going on in their life, one, you get them more productive quick, which is good for your business, and two, you build loyalty. So I have a rule. If anyone is ever really ill or a family member is really ill or they've got any shit going on in their life, am I allowed to use any swear words in your podcast, Heather? Sure. I will just add the little E to the end of it. <laughs> you can use as, drop as many bombs as you want. That is fine. <laughs> I, I won't. Get the heck out of the office and go and fix your stuff at home. The office will always be here. Your job will be out here. Go fix your stuff at home. We're here to support you. Come back when you're ready. So, uh, and, and like, I don't care how busy our business is and how many sales we need to make or whatever. If someone's got their child's really ill and they've gone to hospital, they've just found out their mum or dad's got cancer or their husband or wife has just left them, get the fuck out of the office and come back when you're ready. We'll still be here. Right. You've got to humanise it. I think that builds loyalty because that's, like you said, that's human. And that's what you don't want to lose in your culture. And I think when people talk about corporate, I think that's what you lose. Um, like I don't really care if someone comes in a bit late. I don't really care if they have a longer lunch. I just care if they're a good person in the business and they're getting their job done. Managers, I hope you're listening to this as well, because uh, you don't have to be the sole source of information. You need to connect with your community, which is full circle back to what we talked about in the beginning about what makes for disruptive entrepreneurship. And I have a question for you, Rob, about, about levity. I want to bring it back. If levity could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Can I make a confession? This is like embarrassing, but probably quite funny. Oh, nice. I don't actually know what the word levity means. Wonderful. So when I talk about levity and I, I talk about, oh, I research levity, people initially think, beanbag chairs, they think fun at work, they think games, and there may be some elements of that. But uh, in my research, there are three components of levity, one being amusement, which is, yes, that fun, games, joking, we have a good time here. Uh, there's buoyancy, so the atmosphere is light. I know that when I come to work, uh, I am, I'm going to be in a positive atmosphere where it's supportive. I, I know that people aren't going to be yelling at me. People are, are, I have a friend here, all of that. And then we have edification. So edification is a very old term, 
but but it goes back to this is a constructive environment as well. So I'm not just coming in here uh, joking, hanging around, uh, you know, collecting a paycheck, but I'm also getting good feedback. I'm growing and developing here. So levity is something that uh, encompasses all of that. And it it actually links to things like job satisfaction, team cohesion. So teams that have levity are more likely to perform well together and be more creative and come up with creative, innovative ideas. And if you're interested, Rob's folks, feel free to check out my website uh, at www.leadwithlevity.com. Now, if I hadn't have asked that and put my ego away and not admit that I didn't know what the word meant, you wouldn't have said all that. And therefore, you wouldn't have had that big explanation of levity other than the simple meaning. So I feel really good that I asked you that. Well, I'm glad that you feel really good. (laughs) (laughs) So there's levity on this podcast, isn't there, Heather? That's right. That's right. So could you re-ask me that question again that you asked me? Because I could answer it better now. Awesome. If levity could change one thing in the world, what would it be? This is huge, I think. And I'm going to focus on entrepreneurship. Yes. Because that's my kind of niche, Heather. I think that uh, people, when they start their businesses and they sell and they create their product and, you know, they're a manager and whatever, I think often we take ourselves way too seriously. And I think you should take your work very seriously, but you should not take yourself too seriously. So... Love your art, love your mission, but be a light individual, i.e. joke at yourself. Um, Don't react to people who maybe are a bit pushy or defensive to you. Manage your emotions well. Try and have fun. Like most meetings I'm in, I try and uh, get people laughing. Now, I try not to waste time because, you know, I'm not a joker. That's not, you know, my profession. But I try and have what we call in, in, in the UK banter where possible and try and make it fun. So take your art seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I think you'll be a better public speaker. I think you'll be a better husband or wife. Um, I think you'll be um, a better influencer, a better manager, a better leader, a better entrepreneur, a better mother, a better father. So actually it goes across all areas of life. Uh, and it's ego and it's worrying about what people think about us and fear of failure and fear of looking stupid and fear of being ridiculed um, and the, all these protection emotions that rob us of our levity, i.e. being more humble, knowing that we're all on a level, we're not above anyone or below anyone, knowing that we're all students and we can learn from everyone, but knowing also that we have our own place and we're unique and we have value too. And knowing that people are going through all their own baggage too, and we're all struggling, and we're all a human being, and we're all in the same, we're the same species on the same planet. So in, we're very interdependent and interconnected. So really, we're all on the same mission, if you think about it, all seven billion of us. And I think when you think like that, you just take yourself a bit less seriously, and then life is more fun, and then you're more charismatic, and then more, you're more of a leader, um, and then people jump on for the ride. Um, and they stay with you for a long time and you create loyalty. One of your recent podcast episodes was on, uh, I believe, uh, how to address some challenges, life challenges. And you mentioned the wisdom is in the paradox. I don't know if I'm quoting that uh, word for word, 
But I love that concept. And I feel like levity sort of falls into that that realm. So if you can find the paradox between two things, you can disrupt there. And work, yes, work is work. Work should be <laughs> serious. We should be serious about our work. But do we have to die while we do it? I don't think so. Rob, I, I thank you so much for your time and uh, appreciate you coming on to the show, sharing this time with me, as well as with your fans. Thank you. And I'm, am I allowed to do a little shout out for my podcast on your show? Of course. Thank you. So my podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. And like um, Heather, it's on all um, major um, hosting platforms. Um, and you can find my books on Amazon and Audible. I've written quite a few. Just my name, Rob Moore, M-O-O-R-E. Thanks for listening to the Lead with Levity podcast. Go to www.leadwithlevity.com to access show notes and other resources.